From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host and producer Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing just great. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing well. Thanks. I thought of you when I was at the Walt Disney Family Museum this past week because they are having an exhibit on Disney movie posters from the 1960s. Oh, that's exciting. It was. It was very cool. I'll have to post some up on my Facebook page. Oh, that's awesome. But it was, it was amazing how many, how many great films and goofy films came out. You know, in the 60s. Oh, yeah. Did they include uh, live-action releases, too? Yes. A oh. lot of them were live-action. Uh, the vast majority of them were. That's cool. I, li- I like so. a lot of the 60s live-action movies. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. You know, that darn cat. And, oh, yeah. you know, then they even had some from Europe up there. Oh, really? As well. Yeah. And, you know, they had, you know, the Flubber, you, you know, films. And, uh, and in some of the re-releases... That came out, you know, they had Summer Magic yeah, was very up nice. there, yeah, which is one of my favorite films. I think and actually my, I think my favorite movie from that time period actually is Miracle of the White Stallions. Have you ever seen that? Yes, I did. I saw it when, but I saw it on. Oh, you know what? I saw it when they used to show films in schools. You know, we'd, <laughs> yeah. we'd have a free day, yeah, and so they would like you know rent a film like Big Red, yes, which yes. is actually I think one of them that they yeah. had up. And things like that, and that was one of them. Yeah, I um, the first time I got to watch it, I had knew nothing about it. But uh, when when Kylie and I went to uh, Europe, and uh, the the last part of our little adventures by Disney trip, where we went to to Vienna, um, part of that uh, that stay in Vienna was we were going to see the. Um, the Viennese waltzing horses, which are the, 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 the lippes on yeah, the stallions. Yep, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so we, uh, you know, we we got to watch the movie while we're driving through the the countryside of Austria, which is one of those things that uh, you, you just can't ever forget. So just because of that, that's quickly yeah. become one of my favorite movies. Yeah, yeah. And then they had uh, when Fantasia was re released in the sixties. They, I, you could tell from that film poster what um, the crowd they were. <laughs> yeah, they were catering to. Oh, I, I can imagine. So there it uh, is. It's that Peter Max, you know, style yeah. of art. Oh yeah, that was popular back then. So anyway, well, so well, you know, it's, and speaking of reaching back and memories and all that, in today's episode. Uh, Craig and I are going to explore the deepest reaches of the Magic Kingdom's Adventureland. Now, since all of the opening day attractions for this realm were adaptations of Disneyland attractions, I'm not going to go into the history of their development and design on this show. 
Um, if you would like to learn more about the origins of these attractions, I would encourage you to listen to my 60 Years of Disneyland series on the Dis Unplugged podcast, Disneyland Edition. And there's a list of my Disneyland history episodes on the Disboards. And Craig, would you mind posting a link to that in our show notes? I absolutely. I'd be more than happy to. Excellent. Great. Thank you. And there's some of my other history uh, segments on there, too, that don't necessarily relate to Disneyland. But still good. uh, But they're (laughs) on there. (laughs) So now let's begin our exploration by going back to the opening day of Disneyland. And let's remember Walt's dedication speech that introduced us to the mysterious realm of Adventureland. Here is adventure. Here is romance. Here is mystery. Tropical rivers flowing silently into the unknown. The unbelievable splendor of exotic flowers. The eerie sounds of the jungle with eyes that are always watching. This is Adventureland. Now, Craig, I think you'll agree that Adventureland is the most exotic and lush of any realm at Disneyland or the Magic Kingdom. Oh, I completely agree. Um, And part of that is why it is my favorite land Mm -hmm. in in Magic Kingdom, not necessarily out in Disneyland. Um, We've talked about that already on one show way, way back, and Mm -hmm. how despite it being beautiful at Disneyland, there's a bit of a congestion problem uh, that takes away from some of the enjoyment of it. But, uh, you know, we, we don't have that problem here at the Magic Kingdom, and... I, I just, I love everything about it from the, the the plant life that's surrounding and the design of the buildings and then the area background music. It all just comes together and mm-hmm. it really transports you. That's why, uh, you know, if, if I'm just going into the Magic Kingdom at my own leisure and not going in for work or anything in particular, I, I'm the type of person I always have to start out going left and I go straight mm-hmm. into Adventureland. Yeah, I agree. At the Magic Kingdom, Adventureland is my favorite yeah. land. Um, you know, and part of it is because I'm a gardener. So you know, yeah. there there's Cape honeysuckle, Chinese hibiscus, um, Mexican flame vines, Brazilian bougainvillea, a sword fern, spider plants, and Australian tree ferns are just some of the plants that thrive in the Magic Kingdom's Adventureland. So, no other realm at the Magic Kingdom combines so many diverse locales. There's Polynesia, Africa, the Caribbean, Southeast Asia, and the Middle East. And much of this is achieved not only through the architecture, but by the complex and inspired landscape that's designed by Imagineer and Disney legend Morgan Bill Evans. Now, the story and theme for Adventureland is established before guests enter the realm with the placement of a large volcanic rock planter near the entrance to this area. Uh, The towering palms suggest the tropical atmosphere of the realm. And behind these palms is a lush, unexplored jungle that's enticing guests to explore further. Now, the bridge into Adventureland, which had originally been arched to allow for a grand reveal to guests as they crossed, was flattened in 2011, and that adds to the tropical theme. Now, this realm reminds us of several Disney films. Uh, Many of these are my very favorites. Uh, In Search of the Castaways, The Jungle Book, Swiss Family Robinson, Aladdin, Treasure Island, 
the Pirates of the Caribbean film series and Walt Disney's True Life Adventures series. Yes. So um, maybe In Search of the Castaways might be a bit of a stretch, but it's in <laughs> um, there. There is no set time period for this realm as there is in the other realms of the Magic Kingdom. For instance, the Magic Carpets of Aladdin are set in 400 BC. Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean are set in the 1600s. The Swiss Family um, Treehouse is the early 1800s. The Jungle Cruise is the 1930s. And the Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room is the 1960s and 70s. And the best part is that it never really sticks out that it is jumping around all these times. While, uh, while I think you and I would both agree that maybe not all of these attractions uh, naturally fit into the area. Um, mm-hmm. While they don't do that, uh, in terms of the time periods, you never really, you never really question it. Almost like uh, being over at Universal at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, and you don't question the time period there that clearly bounces around different books and movies. Um, it just, you just live in it, and right. it's really, it's really nice. Right, and except for one area that we'll get into, I think a lot of that just has to do with the uh, the landscaping and and the architecture that just sort of gradually changes as you walk through. Yeah, you know this land. Yeah. So now, after crossing over the bridge, uh, guests are transported to another world. Uh, the air is more humid due to the lushness and denseness of the tropical foliage. Buildings line each side of the walkway, and on the first level of the buildings are shops and restaurants. Businesses and residences seem to occupy the upper levels of the buildings, and heavy shutters protect windows from the hurricane force winds common to the tropics. And the balconies and red clay tile roofs add to the tropical feel of the buildings. Now, if you visited Adventureland on opening day, October 1st, 1971, uh, the attractions you would have seen was the Swiss Family Island Treehouse, which was a B-ticket. Island was removed from the name in later years. The Safari Club Arcade. The Jungle Cruise, which was an E-ticket. And Tropical Serenade, which was also an e-ticket. There were uh, restaurants and snack areas, counter service you could enjoy, included the Adventureland Veranda, the Veranda Juice Bar, and the Sunshine Tree Terrace. And you could shop at the Adventureland Bazaar, the Tiki Tropic Shop, the Magic Carpet, Oriental Imports Limited, and Tropic Toppers. Now, the first attraction guests encounter after crossing the bridge from the hub is the Swiss Family Robinson Island Treehouse, or now it's just the Treehouse. This attraction is based on the 1812 book by Johann David Weiss and the 1960 live-action Disney film. Now, this tree was not planted by Imagineer Bill Evans, but it was created by Imagineers. Uh, This 200-ton steel, concrete, and stucco tree has a foundation extending 42 feet and is covered with 800,000 fabricated leaves, flowers, and buds on its 600 branches and is draped with living Spanish moss. And only four of these trees are known to exist. (laughs) So, this is quite an engineering feat when you really 
think about it. Oh, it absolutely is. Yeah. So, um, and I, we're all just lucky that it was an engineering feat at the time that it was because it just it would never be built today because oh, no. of the obvious uh, ADA accessible problems with it. So, uh, you know, that's why there's always been talk of uh, rumors floating around that one day the, the treehouse is going to be removed because of that. But um, it's, you know, it, it doesn't matter which side you fall on that. Uh, it's Swiss Family Treehouse is just, it, it's a spectacular work of engineering. Absolutely. Yeah. And and what they had to go through, because we have to keep in mind, you know, the utilidors are beneath there. Yeah. So they, they had to, you know, they couldn't have this concrete and steel and all that all hanging there. And this is true throughout Adventureland. So that they had to have, you know, special, um, you know, planting boxes. Yeah. Uh, you know, put built into the ground for the treehouse, but also for all of the trees and foliage throughout Adventureland uh, to contain all the roots and everything, so yeah. that you know they that they wouldn't be you know encroaching upon the utilidors. Yeah. So um, now the Magic Kingdom's tree is modeled after the Banyan tree, which is common in Florida. Unlike the tree in Disneyland, which is modeled after a Moreton Bay fig tree, which was found growing in Anaheim, not far from Disneyland. Now, this rare Disneyodendron Eximus is the deserted island home for the Robinson family. And the Imagineers authentically recreated the home, uh, the shipwrecked family in the film, built for themselves from materials they salvaged salvaged, from their wrecked ship, the Swallow. And the Swiss flag flying over the Swiss family treehouse is the only flag of another nation that's permanently flown over over an attraction in the Magic Kingdom. And as you climb the steps of the Swiss Family Treehouse, you pass through the various rooms with plaques telling the story of the Robinsons. You get close-up views of each of the rooms, which feature furnishings from items salvaged from the Swallow. Uh, Ropes from the ship drive a water wheel system that brings water up to the treehouse in bamboo cups from the stream, carrying the water to the top of the tree. And once the water reaches the various rooms in the house, bamboo pipes funnel the the water into barrels. This still fascinates me. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's just memories of being a child and being fascinated by it. Just watching, mm-hmm. watching this really simple, uh, this really simple uh, feat, just over and over again, and being baffled by it. Yeah, it's it's so ingenious. Yeah, and 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 this tree it makes me realize if I was on a deserted island, I would just die. Yeah, <laughs> I could never make something like this. <laughs> so, um, the the family's pipe organ merrily plays the Swiss sepulchre, which was written by Buddy Baker, and the treehouse looks as if the Robinsons may return at any moment. Uh, at the base of the tree, guests are first given the backstory to the Swiss Family Treehouse. There's a plaque that reads, "Swiss Family Robinson, composed of myself, my good wife, and three sons, Fritz." Ernst and Little Francis were the sole survivors by the grace of God of the ill-fated ship Swallow. From the wreckage we built our home, this tree for protection on this uncharted shore, Franz. I always noticed that the wife, he never named her. 
in, on his little plaque here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As you climb through the tree across suspended bridges and staircases, you can view the rooms of the treehouse, including the master bedroom, uh, with the retracting skylight. That was other, something else I always thought was cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the boys' bedroom and the kitchen. At the top of the tree, you can look out onto Adventureland below and take in the view of the winding river of the Jungle Cruise, um, and which then lends the feeling of being in the middle of a tropical island. So, Craig, is the Swiss Family Robinson or Swiss Family Treehouse an attraction you visit or walk by? Oh, it's 100% an attraction that I actually visit, much to mm-hmm. my wife's chagrin. Um, I, you know, as I just said, as a kid, I was fascinated by uh, the, the simple water mechanisms that was in here. But it, it was everything about it. I, I must have did the attraction first before I... I watch Swiss Family Robinson at home um, because, you know, to to this day, it's another one of those Disney movies that is just uh, ingrained in me. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I absolutely love it. I think it is one of the best live-action movies that Disney ever made. And um, the, the Swiss Family Treehouse just still embodies that movie so well. And um, despite the fact that I'm, I'm sure we would all die off if we had... Um, to be deserted and try to come up with a treehouse like this on our own. Um, it, it still is so cool to see it and be able to imagine that you could be doing this. Uh, and especially as a kid, again, like seeing uh, the boys, how they would sleep in hammocks instead of mm-hmm. a bed, stuff like that. It's um, it's just, it is, this is one of those things that it, it's like, it's the dream of a childhood kid that never got the treehouse that they wanted. So now they can go and walk in this massive one that is just larger than life. Oh, I know. Didn't didn't you always want to be able to spend the night in it? Oh, the I Magic Kingdom <laughs> still would. I'm sure that yeah. the, I'm sure that the bed in the uh, the master bedroom uh, is probably just made of plywood, but uh-huh. uh, I think it would be worth it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, do you prefer the Magic Kingdom Swiss Family Treehouse or Disneyland's Tarzan Treehouse? I definitely Swiss Family Treehouse. I mean, first and foremost, for uh, nostalgia reasons and the fact that I do love Swiss Family Robinson so much. Uh, and I, I'm honestly not a huge fan of uh, the the animated Tarzan movie. It's starting to grow on me a little bit more. I'm. I'm starting to finally be okay with the uh, Phil Collins soundtrack to it. Um, but honestly, the uh, Disneyland's Tarzan Treehouse, it actually um, it, it actually has a little bit of meaning for me, too, because the first time I got to experience it was actually uh, with my wife. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, in terms of Disneyland attractions, that's very rare because of uh, uh, going out once as I was, uh, when I was a kid. Um, with my family, I did a lot of things then, and uh, my first trip back after all those years was with work, and I just wanted to go and do as much as I could, as fast as I could. But Tarzan Treehouse was one of those ones I just I didn't hit on either of those trips. I'm pretty sure it would have been around um, the first trip I had out there. I'm not sure if it was already switched. Eh, it was close. It yeah. might have still been Swiss Family the first time I went out, but regardless. Uh, because I got to experience it with my wife, and she got terrified when uh, you, you first get up to the top, and the the 
is it a jaguar or the cat mm-hmm. just um she she got the timing perfectly where the cat jumps out it doesn't jump it's always there but the sound goes off there right and i i will never forget her almost falling off the side of the treehouse because of how <laughs> scared she was it's yeah. so they're they're both good but swiss yeah. family wins yeah, I agree. I, I prefer the Cecily Robinson Treehouse just because I love the film as a boy. It got me to read the book, yeah, which is a little different from the film. And and uh, yeah, I, I think that film holds up well. I don't think it needs to be remade. Uh, absolutely. And and, uh, and it's funny, Cecily Robinson Treehouse is the very first Magic Kingdom attraction my wife and I went on in our honeymoon. Oh, that's sweet. So yeah, so and, and I don't think she's been on it since. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, there's a lot so. of people that walk right past it. <laughs> no, I love it. I, I try to go on it every time. Yeah. So now, after descending the treehouse, let's walk over to the adjacent Jungle Cruise. Now, this was another popular Disneyland attraction adapted for the Magic Kingdom. And this attraction was inspired by a couple of films. Uh, First, the well, the 1951 film The African Queen, based on the novel by C.S. Forrester, and it starred Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn. Hepburn is a missionary um, named Rose Sayer. She's traveling with her brother, Samuel Sayer, who's played by Robert Morley, to the African interior to convert the natives. Uh, Bogart is Charlie Alnut, who is responsible for transporting the missionaries on board his boat, the African Queen. Unfortunately, World War I breaks out, and the travelers must avoid Germans, river rapids, waterfalls, animals, native tribes, and other jungle dangers on their trek. This attraction is also inspired by Walt Disney's 1955 um, True Life Adventure documentary, The African Lion, which follows the lion through the course of his life on the jungle savanna. Now, the African lion inspired Walt Disney to create a boat attraction through the rivers of the jungles of the world. Walt wanted to use live animals, but he was discouraged from doing so by designer and imagineer Harper Goff, who loved the African queen, which is why the boats look as they do. Yes. Um, So when Walt learned that they would be Un, the animals would be unreliable unreliable, and prone to sleep during the day and shy away from the gaze of guests, Walt opted for audio-animatronic stand-ins. And the 10-minute safari takes guests along the Irrawaddy River of Burma, Cambodia's Mekong, the Egyptian Nile, the African Congo, and the rapids of Kilimanjaro. And along the way, guests see and experience abandoned temples, native villages, and jungle animals, including lions, giraffes, hippos, crocodiles, elephants, gorillas, and monkeys. And sadly, now, no piranhas. No piranhas. No, that that is at Disneyland, mm-hmm. those piranhas. <laughs> so, uh, as realistic as they are. Love them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I do, too. Uh, Now, aside from appearing to be more spread out over a larger area, not very much about the Magic Kingdom's Jungle Cruise is different from the Disneyland original. Uh, The Magic Kingdom's Jungle Cruise is set in the 1920s and 30s during the age of African and Asian imperialism. 
Um, the cube building in a dock area in 1971 appeared similar to Disneyland's, except it was wider. As for the attraction, uh, there was a series of scene variations between Disneyland and Walt Disney World, and they were evident as the Magic Kingdom boats cruised through the Amazon, Nile, Congo, and Mekong rivers. Um, Several new scenes were designed specifically for the Magic Kingdom. In Disneyland, the cruise began by going past Asian ruins that were conspicuously absent in the Magic Kingdom until the final third of the journey. That's when guests at the Magic Kingdom came upon a flooded Cambodian temple, which made Disneyland's crumbling columns and ancient statuary seem a bit understated, you know, in comparison. Now, the Magic Kingdom's Jungle Cruise was intended to be an upgraded version of Disneyland's that would also handle a larger number of guests. It added roughly one minute's worth of additional trip time over Disneyland's nine-minute expedition and included two more boat launches. Um, A more significant difference in the Magic Kingdom's version was that Imagineer and Disney legend Mark Davis was the primary designer of the overall experience. Whilst at Disneyland, his influence was not imprinted on the attraction until 1964, when vignettes demonstrating Mark's comical touch were added in the form of the Indian Elephant Bathing Pool, the Rhinoceros and Trap Safari, and an expanded African Velt. Now, those same scenes appeared in the Magic Kingdom, but they were mixed in with a number of all-new elements that included Inspiration Falls, Giant Butterflies, Pygmy War Canoes, Gorillas ransacking a safari camp, a huge python, a Bengal tiger, um, cobras guarding ancient treasure, and a family of monkeys um, fondling the same loot. Now, each of the 15 Jungle Cruise launches has a unique name. They are Amazon Annie, Bomakandi Bertha, Congo Connie, Ganges Gertie, Irrawaddy Irma, Kwango Kate, Mongala Millie, Nile Nelly, Orin- Orinoco Ida. San- <laughs> <laughs> Some of these are tough. Yeah. They don't just roll off the tongue. Sankuru Sadie, Senegal Sal. Oh, here's a good one. Ukulali Lali, <laughs> Volta Val, Wamba Wanda, and Zambezi Zelda. <laughs> Now, now, Craig, this this is another original attraction. It hasn't changed significantly since its 1955 original. Do you think this attraction has held up well over the generations? <sighs> this is where you really start to uh, separate the, <clears throat> the diehard Disney fans from the the casual fan. Um, you know, there there's nothing more awkward than being one of those people who just absolutely loves the jungle cruise as i am and i'm sure you are too um mm-hmm. if it wasn't for the fact that uh, it had such a line this would be in every single time i visit the park attraction uh something that i'd have to do like another one of the attractions that we'll be talking about very shortly here um i i just I absolutely love it. I love the corniness of the the skippers, um, even though the jokes are pretty much always the same. Every now and then, you know, you get a little bit of the ad lib in, and um, but for the most part, it just it remains this 
this attraction that if you get into it as a, a passenger in the boat, then that helps push the skipper to get into it too. And it becomes mm-hmm. this absolute memorable experience. And there is nothing more <laughs> painfully awkward than being on a boat full of people who just don't get it. Uh, they, they understand the jokes. They get the jokes. They just kind of cringe at it all. They don't, they just, they don't see it like a lot of these diehard fans do. And yeah. um, for that kind of reason, I almost have to say it, it's it's starting to not hold up. Um, you know, and I've even seen this shift come over the past couple of years where you start seeing people, you know, if they get bored, they're on their phones instantly looking oh, through. Oh, that's sad. And, um, and, you know, for me, I am captivated by every second, unless I have a camera in my hand, which I do a lot. I will, mm-hmm. I will always pull up my camera on the Jungle Cruise, no matter how many times I do it. Um, but it's, you know, it's just one of those things where I am into every single moment of it and i i'm seeing more and more that people just aren't grasping onto it like they were before and um this uh, you know i i don't think it there needs to be any changes uh i just if anything i would hope that the people who are visiting the parks can can open their minds a little more and realize mm-hmm. that you know this this isn't i I'll, you know i will never belittle my love for universal but it's not a universal park it's not it's not a six flags it's not right in the moment there are there are some history there's a little bit of history and some uh you know a little bit of nuance to some of these attractions and i would say the jungle cruise is the perfect example of that you have to invest a little bit into it to get a lot of it back yeah i agree and i love both jungle cruise attractions i like disneyland's because you know the the rivers there are narrower so the jungle it's like it's coming over you it's enveloping you a little more than i think at the magic kingdom but i like the magic kingdoms because it is it is a little it's a longer experience you have more of mark davis's humor in there uh there's more scenes in there i love the, the ruined Cambodian temple. I know we've talked about this. I don't know if we talked about it on the show or just, yeah. you know, in our when we've been in the park together. I, I, ju- I just love that where you go through there in that darkness. And that's and, why I don't. Uh, I just I mm-hmm. just don't like that. But yeah. Um, and that's why I think it, it's a tough one. I like the playfulness of mm-hmm. ours. Uh, we definitely have that over Disneyland. But something about Disneyland's just uh, connects too i I think actually i'd say you hit it right on the head with it is much more intimate than ours is and and i enjoy that um Mm -hmm. but no both both two different complete experiences and uh this is one of those ones where you can't you can't say oh well i've done it at disney world so i don't need to worry about it at disneyland and vice versa you have to experience both of them really yeah yeah, definitely. Yeah. And the, the one time that the, I've seen people not get into it is I happened to get in a boat where there were a lot of um, international travelers at the Magic Kingdom. So I don't think they under they had a good enough command of English to understand the jokes. So they just sat there completely stone-faced. Yes. And the poor skipper was just sweating. And I'm laughing. And I'm like, I'm like the only one. 
Yeah, no, <laughs> I've been on many cruises like that, mm-hmm. unfortunately, and that's that's part of that awkwardness that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. But I also I can't remember. It was probably two thousand three, two thousand four. Um, it, it might have honestly been right before Hong Kong Disneyland opened. Uh, I believe they might have been trying to train. I, I'm not sure if the Jungle Cruise is in Hong Kong Disneyland or if it was just a mix-up with uh, college program uh, putting uh, where they were placing people. But bless her heart, we had this um, this Asian skipper who probably didn't know more than ten words in English, and so she didn't do any of the script. The entire time, we just kept circling around, and every about 15, 20 seconds, she would just say, still having fun? And Oh, dear. Nothing else. And it's one of those things, every trip afterwards for, like, the next couple of years, we would just, you know, it was that inside joke that we made with our family, and I had extended mm-hmm. family there, too, when... You know, anytime we'd see each other, still having fun? Because that's all the poor girl could say. And, oh, that's hilarious. Um, so, yeah, no, mm-hmm. it's... It, Jungle Cruise is always <clears throat> interesting, whether it's the people mm-hmm. on your boat or the skipper you get. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, now, a Christmas overlay was added to the Jungle Cruise in 2013, and the attraction was renamed the Jingle Cruise at Disneyland and Walt Disney World. And much like the attractions themselves, they are similar but different in the overlay elements and the skipper spiels. The backstory for the Jingle Cruise is the skippers have grown homesick for the holidays, so they've added holiday cheer to the Jungle Cruise queue and boathouse with decorations that have been mailed to them from home, plus a few they've created themselves. The skippers have also added a slew of new jokes to their tours that are the perfect way to get guests in the holiday spirit. Additionally, Jungle Cruise boats have been renamed with the holidays in mind. And if you listen carefully, they may hear a holiday-themed radio broadcast playing in the background. Now, the new the, the 15 Jungle Cruise launches are renamed for the Jingle Cruise. So Amazon Annie is renamed Eggnog Annie. Bomokondi Bertha, which is wheelchair equipped, is renamed Burr Bertha. Congo Connie is renamed Candy Cane Connie. Ganges Gertie is renamed Garland Gertie. Irrawaddy Irma is renamed Icicle Irma. Mongola Millie is renamed Mistletoe Millie. Niall Nellie is renamed Noel Nellie. Orinoco Ida is renamed Orinoco Ida. (laughs) Now, some of the boats have clearly gone through some name changes over the years. Ruchuru Ruby, which was not one of the original names, is renamed Reindeer Ruby. Sankuru Sadie is renamed Sleigh Ride Sadie. Senegal Sal is renamed Poinsettia Sal. Yukayali Lolly is renamed Yule Log Lolly. Volta Val is renamed Vixen Val. Wamba Wanda, that's also wheelchair lift equipped, is renamed Wasail Wanda. And Zambezi Zelda, I don't get this name, Fruitcake Zelda. Yeah. That, that doesn't even have the iteration or the, yeah. you know, the, I don't know. Because anyway. always get it. Yeah, I know. I guess Zelda's a little crazy. Yeah. Uh, now, now, Craig, do, does the Jingle Cruise overlay make you feel merry or like a humbug? Uh, hello, this is tough. Um, the, the honest truth is at Disneyland, 
Jingle Cruise is everything. Um, I would, I would almost take Jingle Cruise year round in Disneyland. I love it. Um, you know, the the first year, both um, both at Disneyland and Walt Disney World, it was pretty much just kept strictly to the line. Um, the queue was changed up and uh, a bit of the narration for the attraction. Obviously, the, the spiel was holiday related. And then it progressed to where Disneyland uh, just went all out with it. And uh, it became a thing where entertainment actually took over took over it completely and said we want to do it much like they they have done with small world uh mm-hmm. during the holidays and uh uh haunted mansion holiday um disneyland entertainment is just uh, they're geniuses um when yeah. it comes to this stuff and uh unfortunately magic kingdom's jingle cruise just hasn't been given the same amount of love where uh we have started to add in some of the christmas elements through throughout the ride it's just it doesn't compare um it feels it feels almost like an afterthought here like a oh we have to do more uh we we have to put in a little bit of the decorations and uh all of all of that throughout the attraction and it just doesn't it doesn't live up and um the other part too with it and you know i could be wrong on this but because our jungle cruise has a lot more college program uh, cast members working there i feel like it's they struggle because um you know they'll come in if if they're extended on their program they might come in the, the beginning of summer and stay all throughout the holiday season otherwise they came in sometime between august and september and they're just getting a real good handle on their scripts through September, October, and then come November, they have to get thrown on with the Jingle Cruise, too, and learn a mm-hmm. brand new script and really get into it. And I just feel like y- you can tell who doesn't really pick up on it. So love Jingle Cruise at Disneyland. Walt Disney World just... It, they need to either drop it or they need to, to put a little bit more effort into it. Yeah, the yeah, I agree that Disneyland's is definitely stronger uh, in theme and spiel. And yeah. the last time I was on a Jingle Cruise was at the Magic Kingdom, and uh, you know the definitely the skipper's spiel was um, lacking. She relied more on Chris singing Christmas carols yeah. than an actual spiel, and I, I attributed some of it. It was it was late and it was cold. And they don't seem to issue the Jungle Cruise skippers heavy jackets as part of their costume as they do at Disneyland. No. There, I, there, there's heavy jackets for all the cast members yeah. that go with their costumes throughout the park. And I don't see that at the Magic Kingdom. I've had very close mm-hmm. friends who are skippers and, you know, the just horror stories. Uh, they would tell on those cold, cold nights. Granted, we don't get a lot of those mm-hmm. in uh, in Florida. You know, maybe maybe ten or twenty throughout winter. But those nights where it gets into the the thirties or the just the very low forties, and they have to be out on that boat all through all through the night, all through extra magic hours or party hours, and they just suffer. And I feel so bad for them. Yeah, yeah, because the skippers were shivering. I mean, so it it was a chilly night. So I thought, okay, maybe that was part of it. 
But anyway, but it, it is it is a fun. It's nice that they change it up. Yes, agree. Yeah. Now, now the portico that connects Frontierland and Adventureland has not changed much over time, uh, as are the restrooms and the west side still opens into the space now occupied by the island supply company. There were two earlier tenants in that shop. The first was the Safari Club Arcade for guests wishing to go on electronic hunting safaris, and that closed in early 1972. The second was Colonel Hathi's Safari Club, a shop that lasted much longer until 1990, when it was replaced by the Island Supply Company. At that time, the merchandise went from a tropical clothing and sundry selection to one of anything vaguely outdoor or nature-related. Island Supply is now a venue for Sunglass Hut. Yes, it is. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Um, the architecture in Adventureland changes its theme as we continue deeper into the land. Um, you'll notice that the buildings closest to the hub entrance denote a modern Caribbean feel. The architecture motif changes um, with each section of the land. So across the pass from the Jungle Cruise is a very different animal show. Originally, the Tropical Serenade... Uh, Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room defines the architecture for Adventureland. Um, the nine-tiered thatched pagoda tower acts as the weenie, drawing guests deeper into the land. The tower is topped with carvings of gazelle and water buffalo, and the species of water buffalo was chosen because they are visible from frontier land and could be taken as longhorn steer when viewed from that land, thus keeping with the theme of the Old West. Um, The interiors of the peaks of the thatched roofs have colorful designs of faces and ocean creatures. Characteristic of the South Pacific Island cultures of the Maori in New Zealand and the native Hawaiians. Nearby is a small circular area lined by six wooden tiki god statues known as the Leaky Tikis. On your next visit, stand in front of the tikis to hear each one play its own distinctive tribal drum rhythm and you may find the overall experience surprising and refreshing Mm. now the original enchanted tiki room premiered at disneyland in 1963 and it was the very first audio animatronic attraction the magic kingdom's version is similar to the original when guests entered the theater they were delighted by walls lined with wooden carved tiki gods hanging baskets filled with flowers and perches with tropical birds suspended from the ceiling the musical show hosted by four parrots Jose, Fritz, Michael, and Pierre were voiced by Disney legends Thurl Ravenscroft, Wally Bogue, Fulton Burley, along with actor Jerry Orbach. And the 17-minute show featured songs by the birds, flowers, and tikis, sometimes in the singing styles of Louis Armstrong and Bing Crosby. And our younger listeners may have to Google those names yeah um, the theme song in the tiki 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 room was composed by richard and robert sherman in the early 1980s the thatched roof of the show building was replaced with a rusted metal look that remained until 1992 from 1971 to 1986 the attraction was sponsored by the florida orange growers industry association and the animatronic 
Barker Toucan sat outside the theater trying to talk guests into seeing the show with a hilarious um, Spanish accent. And it was voiced by Wally Bogue. It was referred to as the Orange Bird for a time. Um, after the sponsorship ended, he was replaced in 1992 by a new bird with a Caribbean accent named Artemis, who flew away in 1997, uh, most likely in anticipation of what was coming next for the Enchanted Tiki Room. In an example of corporate synergy that was a hallmark of the Michael Eisner era, this Tiki Room was reimagined in 1988 as the Enchanted Tiki Room under new management. And this performance starred the parrot Iago from the Disney film Aladdin and the toucan Zazu from The Lion King. For some inexplicable reason, Iago and Zazu have purchased the Enchanted Tiki Room and are its new owners who want to update the show. However, Iago ends up offending the tiki gods and is scorched as punishment. This reimagined version of the Enchanted Tiki Room was the first change to Adventureland in 25 years. Now, Craig, did you see the original version of the show and the reimagined version? I, I definitely had to have seen the original show version at some time, but I... I just honestly I don't remember um, ever seeing it um, I, I listen to the soundtrack of the original all the time um, I, I absolutely love it with the uh, the Offenbach number mm-hmm. in there um, it's you know I, I, I listen to the version that's off the, the 50th anniversary right. of Disneyland through the years and um you know, of all the songs I've listened to on that album, I'm sure the Enchanted Tiki Room has probably ten times more plays than anything else on that album. I I love the entire soundtrack. Uh, unfortunately, I did see the Enchanted Tiki Room under new management, um, and I, I I can't remember the actual details. Um, but I, from what I remember in my head, um, you know, everyone at least in my generation i'm sure with yours too you know we we know our parents had a favorite attraction um my dad's favorite attraction is it was pirates of the caribbean um i remember on our first trips it was the first thing we had to do when we get there is go ride pirates of the caribbean that was his ride that's what we had to do um for some reason my mom's attraction was the enchanted tiki room she liked like the birds um you know my mom's the type of person she likes likes the train likes the riverboat uh likes the tiki room she likes the sitting sitting and just (laughs) enjoying what's happening around and uh, you know i'm not sure if she just got painted that way or if that's actually the truth i should have should have called her up before we did this episode but um it must have been our trip that we took in 2000 so two years after uh under new management came in um our first time back in a few years we went to see the tiki room because you know that was my mom's attraction and it was clearly different um and i just i I can still remember and i don't want to say this in a mean way but the embarrassment of sitting in there 
being a part of this show that just did not flow together at all. Um, it's, you know, Zazu is a great, great character. Yago's a great, great character in their respective movies, but in this attraction, it just didn't work at all. And then throwing a Oa in there as well, too, just mm-hmm. made it all so much... Um, so much more bizarre and you know thank goodness for Oa because now we have a delicious drink uh named yes. after Oa at Trader <laughs> Sam's and of course in Grog Grotto we have Oa um I don't know if that's a spoiler for the next part of the story but we do have Oa in there a non-working version of Oa uh so you know there take the good with the bad but um the mixture of pop songs in this show, it, with with uh, still having the tiki room in there and then mixing in uh, like friend like me in there, it just nothing really came together. A terrible show. Yeah, I I just thought, oh, what were they thinking? I, I saw it once and I refused to ever see it again. Yeah, I it don't was so believe. bad, and and it was ingrained in my memory. Uh, I just thought it was terrible. Yeah, I, and a little of Iago's voice goes a long way. Yeah. No, we <laughs> we all know Gilbert Gottfried is, yeah. uh, you know, he's got a very distinctive voice in everything mm-hmm. he's done, um, you know, throughout his career. I've tried listening to his podcast multiple times because I enjoy the guests he gets on his show. Uh, but then his voice is still just a part of it. Um, but, yeah, I... I, I don't believe we did it after that very first time. I have watched it back multiple times on YouTube to give it another shot to really to really try to understand it, see more of a Oa, see what they were going for in there, and it's just awful, so bad. Mm-hmm. It is, yeah. Well, in a touch of irony, a fire in the show building really did scorch Iago in 2011, uh, quite badly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Imagineers must have taken this as a sign from the Tiki Gods, or from Walt Disney, and closed the attraction for refurbishment. It opened a year later with a shorter version of the original Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room. So, Craig, do you think this version of Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room holds up, or is it an attraction that's past its prime? Um, You know, I I will put aside my adoration for Tiki Room, um, and I will really come at this from a, um, you know, objective opinion, but I, I do think even though it, that makes no sense. Um, I, I think it does hold up still to this day. Uh, I don't think it's past its prime. Uh, while I, I know definitely older kids, um, you know, teenagers, and a lot of adults may be, you know, not, not as impressed with it, and uh, they will look at it and, you know judge stuff like being able to hear the hydraulics hear the clicks you know all the little problems with it uh the the actual the tiki's in there never seem to work despite how many however many rehabs uh the ride goes through the attraction goes through it just never works uh but it's still if you watch kids in there and how their eyes light up when the birds start singing and then the flowers come to life it, like that is that is how 
you should see the attraction. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, it's the music just caught me. Um, it's, it, I think it was a combination of experiencing Trader Sam's and really just kind of falling back in love with Adventureland. All of it came together, and that's why the Tiki Room means so much to me now. But um, then you go in there and you wonder, who is this for? Uh, just go in there and plant yourself next to you know a, a really young kid a toddler and see how excited they get watching all of this magic come to life um it's in that that is why i think it still holds up you know it's it still has it still has a purpose um oh, yeah. it still belongs well our granddaughter from the first time we took her to Disneyland when she was around two, this was her favorite attraction. Yeah. She always had to see the singing birds, as she called it. We'd have to go multiple times sometimes. Oh, and and she, she still loves it. And, yeah, for me, this is a must-do it is. attraction for the historic reasons. And just it's it's delightful. And, you know, they, they, they cleaned up ours, brought it back to its pristine you know, shape again. Uh, you know, it is a little shorter. You know, they, they removed the Offenbach piece. But um, I do prefer ours uh, at Disneyland just because we have more of the original show elements. Oh, and it's in much it. more intimate. And yeah. the, the fountain is just right. amazing. A very simple effect. But uh, no, it's Disneyland's wins uh, by far. Um, but Walt Disney World has made progress in the fact that in the past year we can now take Dole Whips in yes. ours too. So, right. you know, every little bit helps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, from October 1971 until late 1973, Adventureland ended at the Tropical Serenade Building because there was no Caribbean Plaza or Pirates of the Caribbean attraction. The only way for guests to move on to Frontierland without backtracking toward the Treehouse Portal was next to the Sunshine Tree Terrace, uh, which is not where it is today. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so. I, I, actually, it's probably good as time as any to mm-hmm. bring that up. Um, the Sunshine Tree Terrace is... Well, sorry, I had a little bit of audio issues there. The Sunshine Tree Terrace is actually... Uh, now moved over to where Aloha Isle was, and uh, they have been completely swapped out. So Sunshine Tree Terrace, uh, if you are unaware of what that is, well, that is the uh, that's the place where you're going to want to get your citrus swirl, uh, which is very popular dessert. And Aloha Isle was home of the Dole Whip, and uh, it just made more sense to move Aloha Isle over to the bigger location of Sunshine Tree Terrace uh, because, well, you know, you can serve more Dole Whips and now it's even more convenient because you can take your Dole Whip straight into the Tiki Room and uh, that's synergy for you. So, (laughs) yes, uh, nowadays swapped, but Sunshine Tree Terrace, uh, for some people, uh, including me, it is the, uh, it's the, quick service stand that is right beside the exit to the tiki room mm-hmm. right so now so now what i'm talking about is where its original location is which is where aloha isle is yes so back there there was um you know there there was uh, there was um in those early years, there was no barricade between the Sunshine Tree Terrace and the Tiki Tropic Shop 
that was there. Instead, there was an open and uncovered walkway that led into Frontierland between the Country Bear Jamboree and the Frontier Trading Post um, buildings. But this made for bad show because guests standing in the center of Adventureland could see a Liberty Square riverboat sail by in the distance. This was not remedied until 1976, three years after Caribbean Plaza opened and provided a more continuous link into Frontierland along the border of um, the Walt Disney World Railroad line. Um, The addition of a planter wall and roof structure was constructed next to the Sunshine Tree Terrace, providing providing sort of a a break... uh, a barrier between the two lands that still exists today. Yeah. And it, it really does separate it out and uh, distinguish the two different portals, uh, mm-hmm. which is, which is very nice. Um, you know, that's, uh, there are several areas going through uh, our, our magic kingdom that don't do a good job of breaking up uh, the different lands. Um, but the, you know, with this addition, granted, I didn't see it before, but but with it being there, it it really does because you have to cross almost through that tunnel to get mm-hmm. into the next land, and it's very effective. Now, when Walt Disney World's Adventureland opened on October first, nineteen seventy-one, there was no Pirates of the Caribbean because the plan for Phase Two of the Magic Kingdom was to build the Western River Expedition in Frontierland. This was designed by Mark Davis. The Western River Expedition would have featured a boat ride similar to Pirates of the Caribbean within the Mesa-themed show building, taking guests through scenes in the Old West with a runaway train roller coaster surrounding the Mesa. And on top of the Mesa would be a hiking, tra- hiking trails, a Pueblo Indian village, and a pack mule attraction. Now, the Imagineers planned to build a Western River expedition rather than a Pirates of the Caribbean attraction because they believed people on the East Coast would not be as interested in pirates because they were so much a part of Florida's history and legend. When the Magic Kingdom opened, however, the complaints poured in from guests. Where are the pirates? And this attraction had been heavily promoted by Walt Disney on his television series. And Disney executives quickly realized there was a high demand for an East Coast version of Pirates of the Caribbean. Due to guest demand, Dick Nunes, executive vice president of Walt Disney World and Disneyland, quickly authorized the construction of Pirates of the Caribbean attraction for the Magic Kingdom. This would ultimately result in in the cancellation of the Western River Expedition. <laughs> to, to accommodate Pirates of the Caribbean, Adventureland was expanded to create an area named Caribbean Plaza. When Pirates of the Caribbean opened on December 15th, 1973, most of Caribbean Plaza was not ready to open. This left the plaza as just an entry portal to the attraction. By the summer of 1974, the House of Treasure, Plaza del Sol Caribe, La Princesa de Cristal, the Golden Galleon, and El Pirata y El Perico, and I apologize to <laughs> our Spanish-speaking listeners, um, these were all open, and together they helped to build um, better to find the theme of Caribbean Plaza. Now, within a year, the Caribbean Arcade opened. 
Caribbean Plaza now provided a transition from a Spanish plaza on the northwest side of Adventureland to the Spanish-influenced architectural styles of the 1850s American Southwest in the southwest corner of Frontierland. Now, the Magic Kingdom's version of Pirates of the Caribbean offers a much more elaborate queue themed to a Spanish fortress. The facade of the attraction is inspired by the El Castillo de San Juan del Moro, a Spanish fort on the coast of Puerto Rico outside the capital of San Juan. Inside, the sets of the show scenes are consistent with the Spanish colonial architecture of Cuba and the Dominican Republic. Now, the queue is beneath the fortress and guests enter through an open-air ground floor before walking underneath two archways along a wide um, cellar corridor and into the fortress. And once inside, the queue splits in two. The original path to the right leads to the fort and past a prison scene where two skeleton pirates are forever playing chess. Mark Davis left his humorous signature and love for chess in this scene. The skeletons playing chess are at an impasse. Mark Davis researched past Masters tournaments for a non-win outcome, and he placed the chess pieces so the skeletons would be pondering their next move for eternity. Hmm. And the left queue takes a different path, with less theming to board the bateau, which is the name of the boats, on the opposite side of the loading area. Now, once on board, guests sail immediately into the grotto, then drop down a single waterfall into the battle scene. The blue bayou and scenes of cursed treasure that follow the waterfall in Disneyland's version were not included in the Magic Kingdom's version, as is about half of the interior of the burning city. At the end of the Magic Kingdom attraction, guests disembark their bateau after the jail and final treasure scene, and the bateau are transported up the final lift backstage. At Disneyland, guests remain in the bateau and go up the waterfall before disembarking at the loading station. Now, Craig, before we sail through the multiple refurbishments Pirates of the Caribbean has, gone, has undergone, is this attraction on your must-do list? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, it's the nostalgia part of it. It's the the fact that, um, you know, I was so used to, as I said earlier, always doing it as our first attraction when we came down on uh, vacations because it was my dad's favorite attraction and... Uh, you know, in, I think that even still holds up um, when we were, you know, we would do it at, uh, obviously when we came to Walt Disney World, but even when I got to go to Disneyland with him last summer, uh, you know, we we experienced a lot of attractions, a lot of stuff he didn't get to do, um, but I didn't get to do because it just wasn't around since the times he came as a kid and then um, since our last family vacation out there. And after we got off Pirates of the Caribbean, it was just one of those things throughout the day. He just kept slowly dropping hints like, well, you know, if we get if we get a chance to do it again, I, I'd like to because, you know, it's it's just that good. And, you know, part of it for for me is to that it that's that's ingrained into me uh i i love the attraction i love the music in in it uh you know everything that exitensio did with it um 
the the playfulness in the characters uh just uh, everything about it, it it just hits so um even if i don't like uh the current changes that have been made in disney world in terms of uh in terms of fast pass plus really screwing up the lines and making them unnecessarily longer than they need to be um even if i don't agree with stuff like that it still is ultimately if i would vacation um if i would vacation here as a regular tourist it would absolutely be a must do multiple multiple times and you know even as a local if i get that opportunity if i see that line is 20 minutes or less i'm in it yeah you know for me at disneyland this is usually my very favorite attraction it it, to me it epitomizes everything that walt disney stood for and that imagineering stood for it is the quintessential disney attraction in terms of storytelling theming detail uh you know i don't think there's another attraction that tops it the Magic Kingdom for me, however, because of the differences we talked about, that is not on my must-do list when I visit the Magic Kingdom. Yeah, it just, um, you know, it, it just pales in comparison. Oh yeah, um, no, I for me, you know, you know, I, I totally understand as as a Californian, I and someone who goes to Disneyland very often, uh, more often than you come out to Walt Disney World. I, I get it. Um, you know, we we have so many more attractions in different parks. Uh, skip skip this inferior attraction. Um, so yeah, I, I totally totally understand that a hundred percent. You know, I, I've heard the greatest things about the Pirates of the Caribbean in Disneyland Paris, and I, I've heard all the stories of how amazing that is. I just you know, in my and obviously with the the, the Pirates in Shanghai. We've heard the infinite amount of praise from that, but I just don't understand how anything could quite be as special as that Disneyland Pirates of the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, and, and what adds the, to its speciality in Disneyland, too, is it's the last you know, attraction Walt you know, really worked on. Yeah. So, yeah. anyway. Well, no real changes came to Pirates of the Caribbean until 1997, when the scene with the pirates chasing the women of Port Royale was altered. Um, following the refurbishment, instead of the pirates chasing the women for nefarious reasons, the scene now showed the women chasing the pirates. The other scene change affected the pooped pirate. Now, the pooped pirate is the pirate sitting on the barrels near the women who are chasing the pirates. Originally, he told his dog how he was too tired to continue to chase the women, whilst the blonde woman hid in a barrel behind him. In 1997, his dialogue was changed, so he now told his dog about his treasure map. This map says X marks the spot, but I be seeing no X's afore me. (laughs) (laughs) The woman in the barrel behind him now held a small treasure chest, apparently hiding in the barrel to keep it safe. (laughs) Following the success of the Pirates of the Caribbean film franchise, the decision was made to add characters from the film to the attraction. In 2006, Pirates of the Caribbean was closed for refurbishment, and when it reopened, guests saw the following changes. The attraction fort facade was slightly altered. New props and a new black sail entrance were added to the attraction. The pirate 
Barker Bird, Peg-Legged Pete, who had previously talked to guests outside the entrance, had left in search of calmer seas. He later perched himself in the pirate room in the World of Disney shop at Downtown Disney. The final line of the safety spiel was changed from now off with ya to prepare to make sail. Davy Jones now appeared on Waterfall just before the attractions drop. He warned guests, I, but they do, so says I, Davy Jones, in response to the famous Dead Men Tell No Tales being repeated in the background. The talking skull with crossed swords that warned guests about the attraction's drop was removed. Um, I missed that one at Disneyland because it set the scene so well Mm -hmm. for the big reveal that was coming. You know, you've seen the treasure, you know, and and what was going to happen to you. That it, it completely changed the mood. Yeah. For that scene. In the pirates' ship battle scene, a Barbosa now captains the Wicked Wench. The pirate captain declares he is trying to find Captain Jack Sparrow. The cannons in the battle were altered to fire smoke and compressed air. In the scene where the pirate captain is shown dunking the mayor, he now demands to know Captain Jack Sparrow's whereabouts. Captain Jack Sparrow was now seen nearby, hiding in a dress shop doorway. The pooped pirate was given a key and a treasure map. In the barrel behind him, Captain Jack Sparrow could now be seen spying on both items. The treasure room was completely redone. Captain Jack Sparrow now sits on a throne atop his captured treasure. So, Craig, are you a fan of the Pirates of the Caribbean film franchise? Um, yeah, yeah I mean, the, the short answer, yes. Uh, I... I was, I guess, the first one came out in 2003, um, so I would have been 16. Um, so, I mean, I, I was like the perfect age for these movies. This was right when Johnny Depp was exploding, um, you know, uh, uh, Orlando Bloom was also doing everything with Lord of the Rings, so mm-hmm. he was just massive. And uh, uh, let's face it, even to this day, Curse of the Black Pearl is just a fun adventure movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, I foresee it still being around in, in 50 years, the same way uh, as we talked about Swiss Family Robinson. It still, still has a presence to this day with Disney fans. I, I know curse of the black pearl still will and it despite you know disney trying to shove it down our throats at every possible uh, <laughs> cost um and i i even love dead men's chest uh i go back and forth i while curse of the black pearl is the classic the quintessential pirates movie there are so many elements about dead man's chest that i just i, I think it depending on what day you ask me i might say that's the better movie um uh you know we won't talk about number three and number four so much yeah the- um <laughs> but but yes i i am um you know i i believe somewhere still at home i have like a a 10 foot giant vinyl poster of uh the third movie uh somewhere at home that I got for some reason, you know, I, I was at downtown Disney, uh, at the AMC, uh, the, the night that, um, 
Curse of the Black Pearl came out, we didn't even really know anything about it. We just found out that there was this Pirates of the Caribbean movie showing while we were in Disneyland, went to it, and just mesmerized. And it just, you know, it became this phenomenon for me. And like it did so many people out there. And uh, so I, I have a lot of fond feelings about it. I don't know how... Uh, you know, we'll see with the next movie coming out very shortly here how it still remains um, a, a cultural thing with us. But, uh, you know, it, it will always have meaning uh, to the mm-hmm. people who definitely grew up during the height of its popularity. Mm-hmm. Now, what are your thoughts about the Imagineers reverse engineering this attraction to go from an original attraction to one based on a film franchise? Oh, that's easier. I don't like it. Um <laughs> The the Jack Sparrow animatronics, I guess they're somewhat impressive. I know how technologically uh, inventive they are, and I know that Johnny Depp was even surprised how similar it looked to him. I don't see that. Um, it, it messes with a classic Disney attraction, and I don't think it adds to the story. Um, you know, it's, it literally is to just keep the movies relevant and keep keep Jack Sparrow relevant and keep sales to products um, happening. I, I with, with an attraction, I feel like the only reason why you should update it or integrate a movie franchise in it is if it if it will truly help to add to the story or bring new life to it. And mm-hmm. Pirates, it didn't do that for me it didn't need new life added into it um and it didn't add to the story part of the reasons why thank goodness nothing ever happened to haunted mansion with the uh, <laughs> eddie, eddie murphy, murphy movie. <laughs> yeah um it just <laughs> you know that's that's how i feel about it i i know a lot of people love it um it 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 just bums me out i i think one day eventually we will get back to classic uh pirates when when everything blows over the next time johnny depp screws something up and they no longer want his face on an attraction i think we will eventually get uh we'll get classic pirates back and i'm hoping for that day yeah i uh, i would like to see the classic one come back too but the refurbishments didn't end with this. The This popular attraction has seen more alterations than any other Magic Kingdom attraction. Uh, to coincide with the release of Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, Blackbeard, who is the main antagonist in the film, replaced the Davy Jones projection on the waterfall on May twentieth, 2011. On September 19th, 2012, to tie in with International Talk Like a Pirate Day, Disney announced they would be adding another tie-in to um, On Stranger Tides to the attraction. On October 19th, guests could catch a glimpse of ghostly mermaids just after the waterfall. As the bateau float by, the mermaids can be seen in the water as Jolly Sailor Bold plays in the background. On the nearby beach scene, a mermaid skeleton was added. Yeah, and I don't believe it's been a while since the last time we've seen any mermaids besides the, the one on the beach. Yeah, I haven't noticed that effect in yeah. quite a while. It actually was very cool. I remember one of the mm-hmm. first video assignments I was given for the Diz was to go and... Uh, to film it when uh they they added the 
added the the mermaids in so um that that was neat but yeah (laughs) (laughs) in 2015 pirates of the caribbean was closed yet again for another major refurbishment this time the attraction was clean repaired and relit uh, other changes included adding Davy Jones back onto the attraction's waterfall so he would rotate with Blackbeard, and the audio animatronics, including Barbosa, Jack Sparrow, and the Redhead, were redressed with new costumes. A, new, um, a few new effects were added, including new cannon effects, new lightning effects. The drunk pirate's whiskey was now being on fire. Um, and new scents added throughout the attraction. And backstage, the attraction's ride system was updated. Now, Pirates of the Caribbean remains one of the most impressive musical animatronic displays in the theme park industry. At more than 15 minutes, it's also one of the longest theme park rides in the world. This attraction has launched an entertainment empire with four films that have grossed billions of dollars along with video games and books. Um, Pirates of the Caribbean's signature song Yo-Ho, Yo-Ho, A Pirate's Life for Me by Exitensio and George Bruns is just as famous as the attraction itself. Um, Oh, and Mark Davis left another signature on the attraction. As you pass the treasure room with Jack Sparrow, look for the family crest with the name Marco DeViso. He also expressed his love of chess again by placing rooks in the upper right and left corners of the crest. So, Craig, in this era of thrill rides and youngsters who desire shorter, faster, action-packed adventures, do you believe attractions like Pirates of the Caribbean that emphasize story and theme over action still have a place, or are they simply nostalgic? It's uh, a loaded question. Um, you know, there is a level of nostalgia to it, but uh, I do believe that uh, attractions like Pirates still do have a strong place and uh because of the depth of the story and theme that's there um you know there are some attractions out there and uh you know i'll say like tower of terror great story great theme but the scare is out front you know Mm -hmm. when you're walking down that street you hear those screams uh, the closer you get, you start to see those doors open up. You see the people out there. You know what's happening with it. I can't tell you how many times. I'm sure you've seen the same thing at Disneyland at least once or twice where there will be kids that know there's pirates inside there from the name and are terrified to find out what is actually happening in there. Of course, once you get in, it's not scary at all unless you're afraid of water or Uh, a couple little drops but it's just this great little adventure through and but that's what you know i I like the mystery behind pirates and a lot of these attractions uh, that are like pirates that emphasize the story and theme they don't they don't put right out front Mm -hmm. what the attraction is it's not like radiator springs racers where uh you know there there is a story and theme to it but you see those cars wasn't by you out front you're you're Mm -hmm. giving it away right there there's there's that mystery and that's why i think they have a place because uh ultimately what do we want to do we want to we want to figure out what's behind those closed doors and rides like pirates do that rides like haunted mansion do that um Mm -hmm. and that's they are very important for that reason 
I agree. And it's interesting because, you know, even though Disney tries to do these these exciting thrill ride attractions, they still keep coming back. They they still like to like to the Little Mermaid attraction, yeah. to uh to the frozen attraction yes it, yes it, and so y- they still come back to them maybe not the huge long grand attractions but but they're still they're still adding pirates of the caribbean to the new theme parks yeah so um and and versions of the haunted mansion so uh so yeah these these i think these attractions still have a place yeah the the only thing we need is for there to be a reemergence of Disney exploring original stories through yes. the attractions. And, uh, that would be nice. But we know mm-hmm. the difficulties of that is that you mm-hmm. can't tie it into to movies and you're losing out on extra money. Well, and you, the built-in audience isn't there, so then they're taking yeah. a risk. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now, with all of the changes to Adventureland and the addition of Caribbean Plaza, the Imagineers managed to maintain the continuity of the realm's theme and design. This was not true when an attraction based on Disney's 1992 film Aladdin was added. This Dumbo-esque magic carpet ride called The Magic Carpets of Aladdin opened in May 2001. This new addition was squeezed into a spot in front of the Enchanted Tiki Room under new management. And the main difference between this attraction and Dumbo, besides the theme, is these ride vehicles seat up to four people, two rows of two people. The riders in front decide if the flying carpet will rise or fall, and the riders in the back determine the vehicle's pitch, if it's tilting forwards or backwards. Now, prior to this attraction's construction, references to the Middle East and Adventureland were very subtle. There were some hints of the region in the bazaar's melting pot rooftops and a few items of imported merchandise that linked to North Africa and the Fertile Crescent in a shop called the Magic Carpet. But it was not in a prominent location in Adventureland. The plaza for the magic carpets of Aladdin and surrounding shops are reimagined with Moroccan, Egyptian, and Persian themes of around 400 BC. Amongst the changes introduced were the scenic terraced pools that fed out of the Tiki Room's eastern outside wall were reduced to within just a few feet of the main building. Long-standing planters and palms that had lent shade to the area, including the one with the large rock head, um, sort of like from Easter Island, were removed. Um, Open seating adjacent to the Sunshine Tree Terrace was eliminated. The architecture of several Adventureland Bazaar buildings were transformed into the Agrabah Bazaar. An original Magic Kingdom shop, Traders of Timbuktu, was replaced, and the buildings appeared to be made of thick, heavy clay walls in contrast to the surrounding Polynesian Caribbean theme buildings. The main shop was draped in blue and gold striped cloth to give the appearance of being in a large tent. Now, Craig, I am confident this area of Adventureland is definitely on your must-do list. Well, of course, because (laughs) I'm just frankly too lazy to go all the way around uh through Frontierland and then kind of pop in the back by pirates of the caribbean to enter <laughs> uh adventureland um <laughs> yeah um you know i this is one of those things that uh you know we've talked about a lot in the disney realm of 
you know, they just kind of they they missed it. They were a little bit too late with this. Um, had this change happened in uh, in 1993, right after the height of Aladdin, um, you know, right. I believe my first trip that I can remember was in '92. Uh, so same year that Aladdin came out, 93. So in 1994, um, you know, right after Lion King came out, while Aladdin was still fresh on our minds, if this would have been there, uh, you know, forget Dumbo. Magic Carpet of Aladdin would have been my go-to thing. Um, it's, it, you know, it's I'm a, I'm a kid who grew up in the Disney Renaissance. That's That's what it means to me. But because it wasn't there until way too late uh you know nine years after the movie came out it is it's just irrelevant by that point in time and you know i had all those years of writing dumbo and so now dumbo is the nostalgia uh, hub and spoke attraction for me like so many people and um you know it's granted the magic carpets of aladdin does have a little bit of a uh, fun fun twist to it you know with the spitting Mm -hmm. camel and everything but it's it just it even though magic's in the title it lacks magic yeah i just think thematically it's just an eyesore the whole thing and it's Um, it's the closest we get to the disneyland congestion is right yeah, through that area. Exactly. I was just going to say that. I I don't know. I would love it if they just finally said, you know, we have the Astro Orbiter, we have Dumbo, d- the dueling Dumbos now. I, we don't need this anymore. I would just love for them to take it out. Yep. Uh, or or find heck. another place for it. Throw it over Disney Hollywood Studios. Yeah. Take it out. You know? <laughs> put in a nice, like, round restaurant. The quick service mm-hmm. restaurant that's they, they could be placed right there. Um you know, so you leave, you leave Jungle Cruise or you leave Tiki Room, and you're just you have this place you can go and sit and relax, and mm-hmm. that sounds great to me. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, or a place to sit and enjoy your Dole Whip. Yeah, <laughs> over right there, by seating the area aisle and all that. Yeah, that'd even be so, good. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I I, I just think, and, and you know they did a similar kind of thing less grand in our Adventureland at Disneyland where you know the the much loved Tahitian Terrace that had been closed for well no it it was there and they decided to retheme it as Aladdin's Oasis and it was yes. still a, a show but you have you you have our our tiki room the Polynesian theme. And then you had the Tahitian Terrace that then just blended right in to the Jungle Cruise. And now suddenly in between those two, we have this little Agrabah building sitting there. It makes absolutely no sense thematically. And I think that's why I always avoid it, because it doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense to me why it is there. It doesn't make sense for the story or anything. So... um But happily, there was another change that was more in keeping with the general theme of Adventureland with roots in a popular classic attraction and a much-beloved dining establishment. The Jungle Navigation Company Limited Skipper Canteen opened on December 16, 2015 in the space that was formerly the Adventureland Veranda Restaurant before becoming a meet-and-greet with Tinkerbell which I'd never understood. (laughs) Many of the Dorothea Redmond interiors remain intact, and portions of the restaurant are 1971 opening day originals. Uh, 
Like the world-famous Jungle Cruise, the restaurant on which it is based includes both a heavy dose of storytelling and an emphasis on light humor. The food draws on the attractions African, Asian, and South American locales. And the backstory is that the tour's operator's owner, Alberta Falls, has repurposed her company's headquarters into a restaurant to generate additional revenue. In doing so, she allows customers to go behind the scenes of the wacky business and interact with the skippers. Alberta Falls is the third generation owner of the company started by her grandfather, Dr. Albert Falls. And of course, Jungle Gru's passengers, passengers may recognize that name. And the Jungle Navigation Company, which was originally a cargo shipping company. Um, when the cargo business took a downturn, Alberta decided to open up cruises to passengers at the suggestion of one of her skippers. The success of the Jungle Cruise business was so great that Alberta decided to open up the home offices to Hungry Cruise passengers pre- or post-cruise. The restaurant includes three dining rooms. The Cruise Mess Hall is the largest one and includes wall hangings and photos, documents, native musical instruments, and other expedition mementos. Memorabilia from the Falls family personal belongings they brought over from England decorate the Falls family parlor. Dr. Falls was a member of the Society of Adventurers and Explorers, or SEA, and he used to host fellow members in the once-hidden secret meeting room of the SEA. This room was accessed by a secret panel in the library, and diners in this room are treated to artifacts from this mysterious organization. Members of the Adventurers Club in downtown Disney will feel pangs of nostalgia in this dining room. Now, as with their Jungle Cruise counterparts, the skippers who double as servers at the canteen have the same banter as they do on the Jungle Cruise. For example, after distributing menus to a table, a server might say, I'd like to point out some of the highlights of the restaurant. And then they might point up to the overhead fixtures. There's a light. There's another one. That one is pretty high. <laughs> In a typewritten letter attached to the menu, Alberta Falls briefly explains the history of the Jungle Navigation Company and the restaurant. She concludes it by writing, We enjoy having you and we hope you enjoy being had. Please relax, enjoy your meal, then get out. Her postscript adds, I'm sorry, that was rude. Please get out. There are a lot of details to be seen throughout the restaurant. For example, during your visit, examine the books in the library for titles like The Illustrated Guide to Radio Broadcasting by the skipper behind the voice of the jungle you hear in the Jungle Cruise queue, Albert A.W.O.L. AWOL. Also on the shelf is Boat Evacuation Procedures by Cap Size. Great Characters of World Literature by J. Lassiter. Meeting Royalty by Marty Sklar, Crooning Flowers by Sherman and Sherman, Songs of the Tiki Bird by Wally Bogue, Albert the Monkey, who is the pet monkey of Henry Mystic, even has a book on the shelf along with books written by Mystic and M.A. Pleasure, founder of Pleasure Island. Um, and, of course, Henry Mystic, uh, for those of you who are familiar with Hong Kong Disneyland, know of Mystic Manor. Um, also, of course, there's the classic title, True Life Adventures by W.E.D., Walter Elias Disney. 
Note the angle of The Jungle Book by Rudyard Kipling. This book is on the movable bookshelf, the one that would allow entrance into the secret meeting room of SEA. So we can only assume that this is the book that members of the SEA would pull to open the wall. On the second floor of the cruise mess hall, look for the offices of the three Imagineers who were instrumental in designing the Jungle Cruise. Skipper Bill Evans, who is responsible for the landscaping of the Disney theme parks. Skipper Mark Davis, who is responsible for the humorous vignettes. And Skipper Harper Goff, who was a fan of the film The African Queen and designed the look and theme of the original attraction. So, Craig, have you dined at the Skipper's Canteen? I have. I've uh, been lucky enough to eat there twice, and Mm -hmm. I just, I I love it. Um, Mm -hmm. It doesn't even matter how delicious the food is. Um, You know, between, between, um, between the little hidden details throughout there and the fact that the, the server's carry over that same uh humor that you would you would find at the jungle cruise it just it all works together perfectly for a a great experience um the only thing i think they're truly missing out on is that you know it is the magic kingdom so uh despite now that roles have changed then they do have a limited alcoholic menu uh alcohol menu uh, that you can purchase from the the only thing that this place truly is missing is is a bar to sit and relax at um that it, it kind of you know it this restaurant feels like it should have it um mm-hmm. you know i'm glad it doesn't i i'm in the anti alcohol in the magic kingdom side you know but hypocritical because i have um i have partaked in wine over uh over at a new fantasy land restaurant that remains nameless um mm-hmm. but yeah i just I, I get a kick out of this place it, it's really beautiful I, I i would eat there every single time if i could put up with doing a, a full service meal every time i went into the magic kingdom mm-hmm. yeah i love it i mean I, I like the food it's a very exotic menu so for for people who um, have less adventurous palates, you this might not be the place for you. But the but uh, spend time just exploring and looking at everything on the walls from the you know from the the bulletin boards to to you know, a lot of the items that we've mentioned to light yep. fixtures to everything. Yeah, I and mean it, it's really great. You're right. It is it is exotic, but. Um, I, I don't think it's like, it's not absurdly exotic. Uh, the menu items might sound a little bizarre, sound different than anything you've had before, but at the end of the day, a lot of the, a lot of the dishes are still, uh, you know, you, you can find a plainness to them. So, I mean, we've, uh, at least on the Diz, we've said over and over again, don't be afraid of this place. Mm-hmm. There, You will still find something, even if you are the pickiest eater in here. Um, and it's it's just one of those restaurants you have to see. So just, mm-hmm. you know, face your fears and get what? in there. You're going to have to tell that to my wife. Because I, I can't get her in there. <laughs> <laughs> Next time we talk, I'll yeah, yell okay, at her about it. Good. <laughs> 
Now, now there are some other features unique to the Magic Kingdom's Adventureland. Uh, one is the citrus swirl, and the other is the adorable orange bird. Now, Walt Disney Productions entered into negotiations with the Florida Citrus Commission, or FCC, and they were represented as the Florida citrus growers in the park. For an FCC-sponsored Walt Disney World attraction in 1967, a contract was signed on October 22, 1969, formalizing the FCC's underwriting of a tropical bird show at a cost of $3 million. And, of course, they went on to sponsor the Tropical Serenade. The following year, Wed Enterprises created the Orange Bird character to serve as the FCC's official mascot in promotional campaigns. Now, the official birth date of the Orange Bird was in 1970, and this mascot was designed to be fairly simple. The bird would be orange and have a head shaped like the citrus fruit that he was meant to sell, and green leaves for wings. However, though the design of the Orange Bird was pretty straightforward... He still needed a gimmick. So whilst other Disney characters like Mickey Mouse can talk and interact with others, the Orange Bird's defining characteristic would be that he was unable to speak, squeak, or even make the smallest sound. Instead, the Orange Bird could only communicate through orange-tinted smoke that would display his thoughts. Unsurprisingly, the orange bird thought a lot about oranges and the state of Florida. (laughs) What? (laughs) But he soon developed a catchphrase of sorts. Whenever something was pleasing to the orange bird, his thought bubble would say NICE in all caps. They crafted a nice backstory for him that was told in a song by the Sherman Brothers and sung by Anita Bryant. In 1968, the Florida Citrus Commission had signed with Bryant, a former Miss America contestant, as their official spokesperson. Three years later, she was teamed with the Orange Bird in publicity photos and commercials, most of which she ended with the line, From the Sunshine Tree. As a semicircular outcropping from the larger Sunshine Pavilion's north end, the Sunshine Tree Terrace continued the South Sea's architecture with its torch-bearing tiki sentries holding flames along the roofline. And even though oranges do grow in Polynesia, the Sunshine Tree behind the terrace's orange-tiled counter was a 100% Floridian perennial. It grew from the rear counter and rose to the ceiling, where it formed a leafy canopy over the serving area. Naturally, it was loaded with artificial oranges and orange blossoms. The leaves were made of translucent green plastic. Tottering on a perch near the base of the tree was the orange bird himself, a correctly sized version of the bird, as opposed to the larger character who would playfully interact with guests in the courtyard. After the Anita Bryant campaign um, was dropped in the late 70s, the Orange Bird had a solo career. Into the early 1980s, he became a citrus icon for the state of Florida, where he appeared in television advertisements, print media, and on lots of souvenir items. But to meet the Orange Bird, you still had to visit the Sunshine Tree Terrace at the Magic Kingdom. Now, after Disney and the FCC ended their contract in 1986, his identity became increasingly less tied to the citrus industry itself 
and more closely linked to the state of Florida as an iconic character. And a majority of the merchandise released with his image was accompanied by the name Florida in capital letters. Although Orange Bird merchandise remained a staple of citrus grove stands and tourist area t-shirt shops well into the 1990s, he was fading from public view. Two later developments renewed interest in the Orange Bird. The first was that Delta's low-cost Song Airlines, launched in April 2003, offered passengers the opportunity to hear the Orange Bird song as part of their in-flight Disney musical menu. And although Song folded back into Delta in 2005, enough people had heard the tune in two years to create a lot of online discussions about the Orange Bird and what he was. The second is that Tokyo Disneyland began to produce its own unique Orange Bird merchandise line in 2004, about 30 years after the nation's kawaii, or cute, as embodied by characters such as Sanrio's Hello Kitty or Pokemon's Pikachu movement began. So in 1996, April 14th was christened Orange Day in Japan, a holiday where people exchange citrus fruits along with objects of their affection. By the summer of 2006, more Orange Bird merchandise had debuted in Japan than had been created over the full span of the character's career in the United States. The Orange Bird soon returned to appearing regularly on merchandise in the United States, as well as at both Walt Disney World and Disneyland, which confused people at Disneyland because they'd never seen this Orange Bird yeah, right. in the park. <laughs> on April 17, 2012, the Orange Bird finally made a return flight to his home at the Sunshine Tree Terrace. And that is where we end our journey through the historic jungles of Adventureland. So, Craig, are you an Orange Bird fan? I am a minor Orange Bird fan. Um, the first time I really uh, knew anything about Orange Bird was when they started adding the Orange Bird uh, little souvenir sipper at, oh, yeah. uh, at Sunshine Tree Terrace. And I will still kick myself to this day. It's one of those, it's one of those souvenir cups that I just kept putting off getting. Like, yeah, I'll get it next time, I'll get it next time, I'll get it next time, which is really sad as a local. And, of course, then when I was finally ready to make the purchase, they no longer sell them. Um, and I think I'm still slightly bitter about that. So uh, I, I do have some Orange Bird stuff here and there. I have I have the towels, and I have my Orange Bird magic band, courtesy of Disney Parks blog, and uh, a, a few little random things here and there and i love i mean i love the character it is <laughs> you know it's it is florida to me uh seeing the orange bird and I, I love everything it stands for i love you know the the whole cult of citrus movement that's online uh, regarding the citrus swirl in orange bird it's just it's fantastic i'm glad that uh he's had such a resurgent uh resurgence but um you know, I just, I, I want to get fully into him. I just also know what that will cost me in buying every <laughs> little thing that goes along with it. Yeah. So um, that's why I say minor fan. Yeah, I have I have an orange bird figurine in our kitchen. 
you know, when he got yeah. reintroduced. It was a remake of, you know, the, an original figurine yeah. that they had had back in the day. And I remember him. I remember him when I visited the park as a boy, and he was wandering around and yeah, didn't I, quite figure out what he was because we didn't have, you know, California. We have our own citrus, you know, yeah. industry. So um, even though we saw the commercials, Anita Bryant, um, you know, the commercials were on TV out in yeah. California. So I, I, I have to imagine in the near future we will see the return of the the orange bird walk around character um you know it's everything is pointing towards retro disney with the merchandise that's being created with the fan base who's asking for more and more of it so i I think that's one thing that will happen yeah i was surprised when they brought back the orange bird uh you know back in 2012 they didn't bring back the character yeah i know i i it's inevitable um you know the same thing goes with figment uh, mm-hmm. Figment is getting ready to make uh, the big, the big leap back into it. Granted, yes, Figment has uh, only left Epcot for a very temporary amount of time. Always been, but always still the soul of that park in a way, and an iconic character. But um, you know, Figment, Figment is about to blow up bigger than uh, he's been since back in the 80s and i think orange bird is heading towards the same path Mm -hmm. yeah i hope so and and i hope there are bigger and better things for figment he deserves a better attraction that's for sure oh yeah Uh, (laughs) (laughs) now and yes with apologies to to our colleague and friend kathy Worling. um um, now that we've completed our exploration of adventureland do you believe that this land still has the same relevancy today as it did on opening day especially since disney's animal kingdom opened with its live animals real jungle safari uh more authentic theming and thrill rides uh absolutely uh you mentioned it when you uh discussed the walt disney uh the the kind of the passage in regards to tomorrowland uh or gosh tomorrowland in regards to adventureland uh, you mentioned romance and mystery and those are two things that just aren't in Animal Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, it, those those two things, uh, I, I don't see how they can be fully wrapped into a park that is so dedicated on being completely accurate to the the countries and the locations that they're trying to explore and trying to recreate. Um, they it just. The, the romanticism you know that that brings along with it a, a sort of fiction and you can only get that in a place like the magic kingdom you can't get that in a park that's based solely on reality um you know minus the blue people who are invading and the dinosaurs well, <laughs> dinosaurs are real but mm-hmm. um the blue people in particular um you know <laughs> that that's hurting the reality of that park but in terms of uh, the african and the asian sections of animal kingdom it, they are just so realistic that um they are they are a great companion piece to adventureland mm-hmm. i absolutely agree yeah it definitely has its place yeah 
So, and um, now many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of Connecting with Walt, including Since the World Began, Walt Disney World, The First 25 Years by Jeff Curdy. A Historical Tour of Walt Disney World, Volume 1 by Andrew Kisti. The Hidden Magic of Walt Disney World by Suzanne Vaness. Walt Disney World, The First Decade by Walt Disney Productions. Uh, some websites, Widen Your World website, the Mickey Wiki, and the Disney Food Blog. Well, this brings us to the end of our first season for 2017. Uh, Craig and I hope you have enjoyed our adventurous explorations this month, and we'll come back for more in April. So, Craig, if our listeners can't wait until April, where can they see you on the Diz Unplugged network of shows? Uh, As always, you can find me uh, Tuesdays on the Disney World edition of the Diz Unplugged, Thursdays on the Universal edition of the Diz Unplugged, sometimes on Fridays with Diz Pop, uh, sometimes on Mondays with the Dreams Unlimited Travel Show. Uh, I am all over the place. And then, of course, you can always find me on social media, Facebook. Well, not so much Facebook. I, I stay off that for the most part. <laughs> but feel free to stalk me anytime you want on Twitter. I am at Teleclaster. And, uh, yeah, that's, it's all the places until, until we meet again in April. Definitely. And you can find me every Sunday night on the Diz Unplugged podcast, Disneyland edition with my good friends, Tom Bell, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Mulata-Willie, and Tony Spatel, where we have lots of fun talking about Walt's Park that started it all. And all Southern California theme parks, the Walt Disney Family Museum, which is my beat, and even more Disney history. Listen to us live on Mixler, Sundays at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, Disneyland Time. You can download our two weekly shows from iTunes each Monday. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at www.disneyunplugged.com and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some podcasts positive reviews and ratings. You can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. And on Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother, Roy. <laughs> <laughs>